0: you know even the media if it reports on religion at all tends to report on Christianity it really misses some of the perhaps more grassroots or community efforts Venerable members of the Sangha distinguished guests beloved community participating in the live stream. We welcome you to May We Gather, a national Buddhist memorial for Asian American ancestors. We extend our deepest gratitude to Higashi Honganji Buddhist Temple in Little Tokyo, Los Angeles for hosting today's ceremony. As many of you know, Just two months and eight days ago, this temple was vandalized.
1: That's Chenxing Han speaking on May 4, 2021 at a live stream memorial for the victims of the mass shooting in Georgia when eight people were killed, including six women of Asian descent. Nearly 7,000 viewers tuned in, members of sanghas, that's a Sanskrit word for fellowship or community, identifying themselves in the live comments scrolling on the right side of the screen. Han explains why the organizers chose this 49th day, May 4th.
0: In many Buddhist traditions, the 49th day after death is an important moment of transition for both the deceased and the bereaved. Here in this temple and across the country online, we will make merit together today. Even though we must be physically distanced, our united intention brings us together in spiritual community.
1: I'm Ambreen Khan and this is Inspired. For the organizers, the memorial was also a time to reflect on the legacy of anti-Asian violence and the survival and resilience of the American Buddhist faith community that spans two centuries.
2: When our Japanese American forebears were herded into U.S. concentration camps in the 1940s, our priests were classified as a threat to national security. Our Buddhist faith deemed un-American. When our South and Southeast Asian parents and grandparents arrived in this country in the 1970s, many fleeing wars inflamed by the American military, we were told our cultures and Buddhist traditions didn't belong. In the face of nearly two centuries of xenophobia and systemic violence, Asian American Buddhists have long joined together to rebuild our communities. Piece by broken piece, we sutured the jagged edges of altars, statues, incense burners, and our very bodies and minds back together. This mending is part of our Buddhist practice in America. Each act of rejoining reveals how compassion can arise out of racial suffering, how fragments are inseparable from wholeness. We mend them as a declaration of our interconnectedness, as an expression of gratitude to our ancestors, and as a way to cultivate the karmic conditions for American Buddhism's continued flourishing. As we confront yet another wave of violence, vandalism, and exclusion targeting Asian Americans and Asian American Buddhists, let us honor our ancestors by continuing their legacy of gathering and mending.
1: That was doctor Funi Su. She's an assistant professor of American Studies at San Jose University and one of the co organizers of the memorial ceremony. In a recent newsletter for the Lions Roar, an online Buddhist publication, Sue and Han describe how shortly before the mass shooting in Atlanta, the two were working to address the wave of anti-Asian violence from a Buddhist perspective. But then, after the killings, the idea turned into something much bigger. For Han, amplifying the groundswell of voices of Asian American Buddhists is a calling. In late January 2021, North Atlantic Books published her first book, Be the Refuge, Raising the Voices of Asian American Buddhists part memoir, part anthology. Han weaves a series of interviews into a story that challenges the popular idea that American Buddhism is the domain of white converts. And along the way, Han shares her own spiritual journey. I spoke with Chen Zing Han in March 2021 from her home in the Bay Area, just a few days after the attacks in Atlanta. Zing Han, welcome to the program. I want to begin with the opening chapter of your book, the acknowledgments that you have at the beginning. You describe it almost like this symphony of acknowledging all the different people who played a role in helping you along the way. You reference one particular person, the angry Asian American Buddhist that's the
0: pseudonym for um, a blogger whose real name was Aaron Lee. And he started that blog probably around 2009. It was really interesting to me because it was the first time I heard an Asian American voice speaking about issues of race and representation in American Buddhism. I met him Through my graduate thesis advisor, Dr. Scott Mitchell was active on the Buddhist blogosphere at the time. And of course, so was Aaron, but writing anonymously. And he said, okay, if you're going to do a project, in Asian American Buddhist, you have to be in touch with this person. And I thought, okay, is he going to be really mean? Because he's angry Asian Buddhist. And like the first email was just like, I would love to help you. I will connect you to anyone you want. And just from that moment on, it was like, felt like sometimes it felt like practically every day we were exchanging emails. He was recommending people to me. He was living in LA at the time. And yeah, he has a really interesting history himself. He was a half- Ashkenazi Jewish, half Toy Chinese, and his grandmother was Buddhist, but he'd been primarily raised Jewish, but had really connected to Buddhism in college and been connected to Buddhist communities there. And LA is such a diverse Buddhist city. So Aaron was there and just, he would just make friends with everybody. <laughs> he just went to like every community. We used to joke that Aaron knows all Buddhists because I think one time he was in New York and his cab driver was maybe Bangladeshi, but Buddhist. And then he found out he like knew one of his relatives and we were like, yes, you actually do know all Buddhists. So he just had this like beaming smile and he was so friendly. And I always say like the angry Asian Buddhist came out of a place of such love for his communities. And Also, it came from a place of hurt to see those communities erased from the broader narrative to have those communities get this message like we don't matter. And so you're right. I mean, Aaron is absolutely integral to the book. He's there from beginning to end. The title, in fact, is his as well, Be the Refuge.
1: When did you decide that it was time to write this book? in 2012, I thought, where are all the young
0: adult Asian American Buddhists? You know, I was in my 20s at the time. It felt like they must be out there, but how come I never see their voices? And so that really got me started on what I thought would just be like a small master's thesis. I thought no one would talk to me. And then 26 interviews later, interviews that were between an hour and a half and five and a half hours long, I realized like, oh, oh, this has actually struck a chord, you know? And then I had actually 63 more people who wanted to do interviews with me I couldn't meet them in person because they weren't all in the Bay Area or Southern California. So I opened them up to email interviews, made that adaptive. And by the time I had 89 interviews, I sort of realized with a sinking feeling that this is way beyond the confines of a master's thesis and these voices really need to be heard. And that started me on a rather long journey of turning this into a book.
1: What were you getting your master's in?
0: in Buddhist studies at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. And GTU is actually a consortium of different member schools, mostly you know Christian seminaries but there's also a member school called the Institute of Buddhist Studies which was actually founded all the way back in 1949 so I took most of my classes there and in retrospect it was the perfect place I actually can't really imagine another birthplace for this book because this is a tradition whose roots go back to the 1800s in America among the first people to bring Buddhism to America the oldest Buddhist institute in the United States rooted in a Buddhist tradition called Jodo Shinshu or Shin Buddhism. And unfortunately, when people think about American Buddhism, they very seldom think about Shin Buddhists. And I'm guilty of that myself. It was really only once I learned about this grad school and enrolled there that I started to learn about the Vibrant community in the present and also the incredible strength and resilience of this community historically over multiple generations in the face of discrimination, you know, how they continued to practice Buddhism in the wartime camps when they were incarcerated. <music>
1: Early in the book, you talk about the Buddhist churches of America and how they survived by adapting their practices, specifically assimilating and becoming more anglicized. Is that an accurate reading? And and if so, why did you feel it was important to, to bring that up?
0: Yeah, I mean, the Buddhist Churches of America, which is out of the Shin Buddhist tradition, was originally named the Buddhist Mission of North America. And they renamed themselves the Buddhist Churches of America during World War II, because of the kind of discrimination they faced. And then ironically, in modern times, there have been people who said, oh, why do you call yourself a church? Like, that's not very Buddhist. You should call yourself a temple. And that again, ignores the histories, the pains that Japanese Americans took to make it safe for their Buddhist practitioners to be able to practice in this country, to adapt to this country, right? To hold Sunday services and to have pews. So people think, oh, it's so Christianized and uh, they ignore actually the deeper historical reasons why that's the case. And in fact, they are completely Buddhist and their theology is... And I could even, I should even say maybe Buddhology is different from that of a Christian church. But when people just look at the surface level of things, critique without understanding the deeper dynamics, that's when they miss the full picture.
1: And is that what you're trying to do with this book? I mean, because you do introduce some of those tensions, some of those observations, some of those critiques that different members of the Asian American as well as non, um, non-Asian Buddhists have of each other. Are, are you trying to also be yourself a bridge between those two kind con- of constituencies that are under the umbrella of American Buddhism?
0: Yeah, I think I'm just trying to invite people to listen and to share their stories both trying to weave together or bridge those groups and also to acknowledge our black Buddhist practitioners, our black Buddhist siblings and Latin and mixed race. I, I was really trying to create a space where We can center Asian American Buddhist voices, but in a way that helps us recognize the full diversity of something called American Buddhism and help us recognize, I think we are just getting started in understanding what that full diversity looks like. And seeing that full diversity is going to require more of us to tell our stories, is going to require the dominant groups possibly to step back a little bit and create more spaces where we can hear from the
1: marginalized voices. Coming up, Chen Xing Han describes her upbringing and how her parents' experience surviving Mao's cultural revolution in China shaped her childhood and early views of religion. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be right back after this short break. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. I'm Amboreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired. This week, my conversation with Asian American author and activist Chen Zing Han. We're talking about her first book, Be the Refuge Raising the Voices of Asian American Buddhists. What began as a master's thesis turned into a story, one that took Han on a journey of her own, not only of deep listening, but finding her own place and calling. Han credits the title and the animating question behind the book, Where Are All the Asian American Buddhists?, to the early work of Aaron Lee. He was the anonymous blogger who went by the pseudonym Angry Asian Buddhist. He passed away after a battle with cancer in 2017 at the age of 34. His impact on Han can be felt in the opening pages of her book, which invites listeners into the grief she expresses as verses of chanting, a ritual that takes place at the beginning of his memorial service. Be the Refuge is part poetic memoir, part anthology. Han's writing, like Lee's, pushes against the portrayals and the branding of American Buddhism that is dominated by white converts. Each section of the book challenges the reader to see the nuances and complexities of a diverse community that practices Buddhism across America. For Han, an immigrant from China, the journey into this world did not begin in her childhood home.
0: I was not raised. In a religious household. I'm an only child. My parents immigrated from China. They lived through the Chinese Cultural Revolution. So they actually raised me kind of to be very, um, what's the word, skeptical, to put it kindly, of religions, I think, because they had seen the kind of violent effects of the cult of Mao. And so I was not raised religious. And Buddhism is something that I only came to really Maybe towards the end of high school, I took a gap year before college and spent most of that time in Asia. And I just remember traveling through Thailand and Nepal and Tibet, seeing Buddhism as a common thread, but in such different manifestations and just being really in awe of the art and the architecture, and especially the people there feeling like, well, you know I think it's important to remember like, of Buddhists in the world live in the Asia Pacific region. And so to see it there in the, the adopted homelands of Buddhism was really powerful. And it made me curious to know, like, of course, there are so many Asian diasporas around the world. How have they adopted Buddhism, especially in places where... You know, they're both a racial minority and a religious minority. So I always talk about there was never really a single conversion moment to Buddhism for me, that it was really like a gradual process, kind of like the way, you know, you steep tea and the water slowly takes on the flavor over time. And pretty soon the water just has become tea. And so I think Buddhism sort of permeates and perfumes every aspect of my life now, but it's really hard to pinpoint an exact moment.
1: that journey and the way in which Buddhism now permeates all aspects of your life, when you look at the various expressions, do you feel like you have found a home, a spiritual home here in the United States? Where do you feel kind of that sense of community?
0: In a funny way, a little bit of everywhere, like even in nature, for example. I guess what I mean is I think I've learned that Buddhism itself is so adaptable. And I think through the process of writing this book, I've realized, you know, sometimes we can't exactly find the communities where we feel really a deep sense of refuge or safety. So we create them, right? In the Zoom era, we create a vigil, we create a Buddhist service, or we just gather, you know, we can't really gather with our friends Yet safely, I think, hopefully soon. But I think I've become more open to the possibilities of kind of Buddhists are everywhere if you know where to look. When I was living in South Africa and visiting different Buddhist communities there and finding them, it was like, oh, wow, I never would have expected to find that here of all places. And so I think that actually gives me a sense of hope rather than feeling like I need all of these conditions and then it will be my Buddhist community. It's about trying to figure out, we talk a lot about causes and conditions in Buddhism. So it's sort of like figuring out what are the causes and conditions based on the current causes and conditions. You know, what kind of maybe sense of refuge or home or safety can I create for now? And something else Buddhists think a lot about is impermanence, right? So that it's always changing all the time. We're always going to have to adapt to new situations, to new needs. And I think that writing this book actually... Gave me a sense of greater hope. It's a lot of work (laughs) to create those communities, but it can also be a really joyful process.
1: How does your practice of Buddhism, how does it make you see the world?
0: It's always so helpful for me to remember that these sorts of seeds of what in Buddhism we might call wholesome or unwholesome actions, they're in all of us. And you know. We have some degree of choice over like I can water certain seeds over others, but the society we live in, there's so much violence in it. So I guess I see that there's, it's not just all on individuals, right? To just, oh, if I just think positive thoughts, like everything's going to change. We need to come together for collective action. It's a sort of, it's not just individual karma that's at play here. It's this sort of collective karma.
1: Would you define what that means for you?
0: Yeah, I think of it as action, and specifically that our actions of body, speech, and mind have an impact on the world. You know, I think in popular culture, people will think, like, oh, like I didn't get a parking spot because I cut a person off earlier on the freeway. Oh, no, that was like <laughs> what goes around comes around. And, but I think that actually, one important thing about karma and Buddhism is actually there's this idea that if you're not omniscient, you can't actually know the impact of every single action you take. But within Buddhism, we sort of, you know, rather than commandments, we have precepts. And these are sort of just like we undertake the practice of refraining from killing, refraining from stealing, lying, sexual misconduct, or the use of intoxicants. And it's a sort of I love the phrasing of that. Like we undertake the practice and it's kind of knowing like, yeah, we're going to fail. Like, and then we'll just, you know, pick ourselves back up and try again. And so there's a way in which we can observe, like, are there certain actions we do that actually seem to cause harm to ourselves or other people? And if we start noticing that, what can we do to adjust? Right. And so to me, it's a reminder that even during the pandemic, even when we're so, we're so isolated, even when it might seem like our only relationship is with our phone or with our computer, that actually even the ways of our thoughts, even what we're thinking, or even when we reach out to a friend, like those small actions actually make a huge difference. And the way I like to phrase it is that we're actually much more powerful than we know. We can't actually know the effects of our actions, which means that you know we need to forgive ourselves if we inadvertently cause harm to someone or offend them or hurt them hopefully they let us know and then we can apologize and you know make repair and adjust our actions Um, but also we can celebrate that even like little tiny things we're doing might actually have an outsized impact beyond what we can see
1: That long journey and all of those interviews that you described a couple of things struck me one it it sounded almost like it was a i don't want to say a coming of age book for you but it almost sounded like it was a finding your spiritual connections and community that you were discovering in listening to these various experiences from Asian American Buddhists who had who had different experiences all from you know very different places started to feel like you were knitting together this this framework of trying to understand and situate your own experience as an Asian American Buddhist.
0: That's a beautiful way of putting it. I don't know if anyone has quite um, languaged it that way, but I think it's really true. It's funny. I was reading on the page and wasn't finding a kind of You know, community that included Asian American Buddhists. So in a way, I suppose I was looking in the real world and finding bits of it here and there. And then I think maybe I returned to the page again and kind of imagined a kind of community, right? I interviewed these people one on one, but there was something powerful about weaving them all in. And it actually took a while for me to kind of work up the courage to weave myself in since it began as a more scholarly project. And there's such a convention of, you know, kind of having some objective distance not that that's ever I like really the possible i like
1: the voice i like the voice you made <laughs> yeah i know i hear you i hear you i totally get it
0: exactly yeah and actually a big inspiration i think it was around 2014 was i went to hear ruth ozeki speak about her book a tale for the time being and she is asian american or rather you know canadian but also as Zen buddhist priest and i asked her afterwards if you know, I had this thesis and I wanted to turn it into a book, and she was very gracious. And we later talked on the phone. And the big piece of advice that really stuck with me was she really encouraged me to write myself into the book and make it an account of my curiosity. So I had this whole first iteration of the book with like 500 footnotes, and I threw that one out basically and rewrote it from scratch for a more general audience and wrote myself into the book because I realized in a way, a common thread in all of these interviews was myself and my own story. And so the book ends up having kind of elements of memoir, but also it feels a little like an anthology because there's other voices. And I suppose it is very symphonic in the way that you describe.
1: In the span of the time of you collecting these interviews and more public awareness about the Asian American Buddhist community, Can you describe the changes that you've seen? Do you feel like there's been a change in perceptions, both from media, but also from other cultural forms of representation, whether we're talking about movies or films or television scripts? Lots of things form those ideas that we have about groups that are part of the religious landscape in this country.
0: Absolutely. I think, you know, the 10 years to kind of create this book feels like such a drop in the bucket in terms of time, actually. And Buddhists are often thinking of lifetimes in the plural, right? Kalpas in the plural. So if I think about shifts, something I do think that I've noticed is, and I think the angry Asian Buddhist played a big part in this. He sort of just made it uncomfortable for people to ignore race. He kept saying, you know, we need to look at race because it causes suffering for people and he would get pushed back and say, "You're being divisive, and you're not Buddhist at all. And if you were more compassionate, you wouldn't be talking about these issues." And yet he persevered.
1: Your relationship to Aaron, you know, it, it's so clear that he was an important figure in your life, and clearly as someone whose work in this area has a legacy that I imagine touches many, not just yourself. When you look at Aaron's journey, and you think about your own, where are there parallels?
0: I think the kind of openness to exploring Buddhist communities kind of around the world, actually, and then having that inform our understanding of even what's possible in American Buddhism, I think for both of us feeling like receiving this narrative of there are two Buddhisms in the U S and it's white converts and Asian immigrants. And then the kinds of assumptions that spin out from that, like the white converts are rational and they're meditating and kind of practice a superior form of Buddhism and Asian immigrants are kind of superstitious devotional, eh, you know, is that real Buddhism? Like we, I see, we saw those narratives And that's not the kind of Buddhism we wanted to live in. So I think in making connections across ethnic and racial lines, across sectarian lines within Buddhism, we were exploring the possibilities of something called Asian American Buddhist, whatever exactly that is. It's still kind of a community in the making, but I think almost creatively and joyfully exploring the possibilities of what that umbrella does who can be brought together people who can see each other and say hey like we're almost all part of this big buddhist family and maybe parts of our family have been kind of estranged from each other but can we have some kind of reunion can we look at our common (laughs) roots can we find our commonalities right and of course we'll probably bicker and have tensions as well like any very large sprawling family
1: you know, I, I love the familial uh, metaphors, because I think sometimes people like to talk about tense. And I think family might be a little bit more appropriate, because there are tensions, and there are <laughs> struggles, and there are disagreements. But there's something that binds you together. And it's that, you know, that, that identity and that connection to belief. For listeners who are not familiar with Buddhism, when you say American Buddhism, what should I know? Not what I might think, but what should I know?
0: It's always helpful to remember, you know, it's only about 1% of the population, so it's a minority, but of that 1%, two-thirds, so a really large majority, are of Asian heritage. And that these people really come from very diverse backgrounds. And so it's almost hard to say, you know, what specifically, can we know you have to talk to the individual, hear their stories, not make assumptions, right? You can't assume an Asian person was raised Buddhist, they might have converted to it. You can't assume they've just arrived in this country, they might have been here five or six generations. So that's another really important point, that the history of American Buddhism goes really deep. But that history is incredibly indebted to Asian Americans, I mean, who have been the stewards and the shapers of this religion. The religion kind of adapts in every country it goes to in the 2,600 plus years that Buddhism has been around. You know, relative to that, um, American Buddhism is pretty young. But it didn't begin in the 60s because white converts started practicing Zen or started practicing Tibetan. Of course, they're part of the Buddhist story as well. But the story goes back so much further than that.
1: Many cite and talk about the Dalai Lama. And they really see it just through the lens of his spiritual leadership. When you start to look at and get to know American Buddhism and all of its flavors, can you talk to me a little bit about what the leadership looks like? What did you learn about where people come together? How do they gather? And who you know, are their leaders?
0: I think you have to look at different communities, right? I mean, I think is very hard to fit Buddhism into Christian hoops. And having done chaplaincy training, I I feel like I know what it feels like, right? But no, there's not something like a centralized Catholic church. Like there's not that kind of hierarchy that people expect. I mean, certainly among the Tibetan community, you know, His Holiness is a major leader. But I think it's also important to remember, I would ask people can you name a famous American Buddhist? And people would name names. And then I would ask, can you name a famous Asian American Buddhist? And people would mention His Holiness and also uh, the Venerable Thich Nhat Hain. But I would say like, what about living in Asia? And I think that's also a reminder of how the popular culture, unfortunately, tends to conflate Asians with, Asian Americans, so remembering that those two categories are distinct as well. But yeah, again, I think that people have talked about how in America, there is a trend towards laicization, in other words, like moving away from monastic communities, but at the same time, there are still monastic communities for whom there are either a single monastic leader or maybe that leader has passed and the next generation there are multiple monastics to whom people look up to for leadership but also I think something that I talk about a lot in my book and I think that's evident from our conversation today is this importance of what in Buddhism is called kalyanamitta or spiritual friendship having spiritual friends and it's kind of almost we can think of it as a more horizontal level of friendship that it's really important to have spiritual friends on the path And, you know, I have interviews who say, really, like, I feel that everyone is my teacher. Everyone is a bodhisattva, the bodhisattva being kind of a figure who forsakes their own enlightenment for the enlightenment of all kind of this. I'm not free until everyone is free. Of course, that's an ideal, but I think some people really live their life that way in a way that it can feel less hierarchical. You can find it all. You can find more hierarchical. You can find less. But again, it's so incredibly diverse. Mm. And I, I, st- I find that really actually astonishing and really interesting. Um, just endlessly fascinating how it's like, oh, oh, you're part of the Buddhist family, too. I didn't know <laughs> at all. Like, wow.
1: I'm Ambreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired. I continue my conversation with Asian American author and activist Chen Zing Han. On May 4, 2021, Han was one of the lead organizers of a live stream memorial service to remember the eight people killed in a mass shooting in Georgia. The two-hour-long ceremony featured rituals, chanting, and prayers from a cross-section of Buddhist leaders from the different traditions of America's Buddhist landscape. It's a landscape that's featured prominently in Han's first book, Be the Refuge. It was released in January, and it's part memoir, part anthology. Her book draws on nearly 100 interviews conducted in person and online. What began as part of a master's thesis has evolved. Trained as a chaplain, the book reflects Han's deep listening skills. And an attentiveness to the different ways Asian American Buddhists express their faith. While honoring their individual stories, Han organizes the stories into categories, creating a new framework for thinking about the Buddhist community. Can you describe how you ended up kind of organizing the interviews to introduce them to readers, but also for making sense of the role that they play as part of this really diverse, really rich American Buddhist community.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I was really actually inspired by one of my interviewees. His name is Noel and he's Filipino-American. He was raised Catholic, but came to Buddhism later in his life. And he described himself as a first-gen Buddhist in the sense that he was the first generation in his family to be a Buddhist in America. And he lived in LA and still does. And he looked at his friends who were maybe from, you know, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Taiwan, other places. And he said, wow, these are second-gen Buddhists. And then he said, I also have my multi-gen Buddhist friends. For example, like my Japanese-American Shin Buddhist friends. They've been American Buddhists in this country for multiple generations. And that, when I really thought about him saying that I thought oh that's a way I can structure my book Um, and the categories aren't meant to be like mutually exclusive for example Aaron himself found resonance in all the categories because he said well my grandmother was you know Buddhist so that's kind of there's this multi-generational element because these Chinese people have been in this country for so many generations and then he also found a kind of affinity with second generation but he was also sort of a convert because he was raised Jewish so I liked there was a kind of porousness to the boundaries, um, but they still created exactly, as you said, a container where I could focus first on multi-gen Buddhists and then second-gen Buddhists and first-gen Buddhists. They're actually parts of my book. I call them respectively trailblazers for the multi-gen, bridge builders for the second-gen And then integrators for the first gen. So I think there were unique themes once I grouped my interviews that way, that came up more in our interviews. And then the final part of the book really weaves together the voices from all of the previous three parts. The final part of the book really weaves together the voices from the previous three parts. And that part is called Refuge Makers. And it's really exploring how we can incorporate our understandings of race, ethnicity, culture, identity in what some might call a socially engaged Buddhism and in what in this book I call a culturally engaged Buddhism. And to me, Asian American Buddhists are actually an incredible model for all Buddhists who want to understand what it looks like to be more culturally engaged in their in their practice and in their relationship to buddhism and that doesn't mean it doesn't necessarily have to be one's own heritage or culture i'm defining culture really broadly of Looking at histories and art and ritual and language and food, all of these things that have shaped the Buddhist communities that we're a part of and the Buddhist friendships that we're forming. But attending to that dimension rather than pretending, oh, we're all the same, right? I think actually helps deepen our relationships within Buddhist communities.
1: Where do you see the Buddhist communities that you've come to know? Where do they fit in in this multi-faith landscape that we have in the United States?
0: Yeah, again, I think that, you know, Buddhists like other Americans in this country, we are thinking about these issues and people are organizing at their temples, in their sanghas, in their local communities. It may not be the trending news item, but we're kind of here quietly doing the work. And I think there's a kind of Buddhist teaching there too. Like there's these worldly winds, um, which include praise and blame. So it's sort of like almost regardless of whether we're getting a spotlight or not, that we continue to do work that alleviates suffering in the world, that contributes to the healing in this world, and hopefully continue to stay connected to this uh, core value of non-harm within Buddhism.
1: What advice would you offer to those who want to engage with our local Buddhist communities? There's always
0: the reaching out and inviting people into one's own space, but I think it's powerful to think like, who gets the host and who gets to set the table? What does it look like maybe to go to a space where one is not really familiar with the religion or the norms. And so there's a, we talked about humility, right? There's a kind of humbling, I think, and that place of humbling, that place of listening, that place of just being attentive and being curious, I think, is a beautiful place to start. So maybe it means that you take off your shoes and You walk into the temple and maybe you're not completely comfortable participating in all the rituals and that's okay. But you might just take in the smells of incense that might be there or look at what is on the altar there. Look at how people are connecting. Have a meal together. I always think like just eating food together is just such a beautiful way to um, bring people together. And on that note, one can think about, you know, If you're going to host an event, what kinds of foods do you have? There's these like little things that we can do to help people feel inclusive, both reaching out to them to invite them to your own community, your own religious community, but also especially going to visit their religious community and just asking questions, being curious, being respectful.
1: The listening is what I'm hearing you say. and um and being the guest, not being the host and being okay with that. finding a little exactly finding right. a little comfort in the discomfort uh, sometimes can help a lot in creating and building the trust that relationships require. as we look at continued reflections and memories uh, and and remembrances for people who have lost their lives, it has also been an opportunity for. Revisiting chapters in American history that uh, have have often been erased or just glossed over. Yeah, it is really heartening to see people start to understand
0: these aren't just isolated incidents. That there's a deep history to these sorts of discrimination and exclusion. And honestly, one of the most heartbreaking things is that it's a daily occurrence for just far too many people. Recognizing both that deep history and the ways that history continues to play out in people's daily lives in ways that can cause so much pain and suffering. And some of that, a lot of that pain and suffering I think is psychological and emotional. And so it seems very invisible. So how do we create safe spaces, safe containers where it's safe to share these stories, where it's safe to grieve together. And then from that grief, how can we start planting seeds where can reduce some of these kinds of violences, where we can change some of these systems. I think this kind of empathy and growing awareness, I hope, will, you know, send us in a more positive direction.
1: There are the the challenges that, that we have among intergroup, you know, tensions and, and relations. Do you feel like those struggles are going to be in some ways strengthened by this crisis? Or do you think that they are going to create even more challenge?
0: I hope they'll be strengthened. I think it's really important to attend to those tensions and not pretend they don't exist. Um, I think like intra-Asian tensions as well as interracial tensions, I think particularly between Black and Asian communities. And it actually gives me so much hope to see the kinds of solidarities that are emerging. And also, I think to understand when those solidarities don't emerge, there are often good reasons you know, painful histories of colonialism in Asia, of wars between Asian countries. And I think being empathetic and not judging people for their views, but trying to understand more deeply and then trying to connect with them on a point of shared values. It's fascinating to me how people who care about safety, you know, maybe have a shared value of safety, but express that differently. Some people think like, oh, I need more guns and that will make me more safe. And some people think like that, we need to get rid of guns, and that won't make us more safe. Like how do we bridge between what can sometimes seem like just unsurmountable chasms? But I think we have to find ways to bridge, because that is the only way we can really live in this multiracial, multi-religious society peacefully.
1: I'm particularly struck by right now where we are in the world, and where we are in our political, social history. When it comes to being and wanting to envision uh, a socially engaged community, uh, what does that mean in, you know, in 2021? Yeah, for me, there's just such an
0: upswell of pain and trauma, and the need to. Attend to that, what I would call like a long tail of trauma. Um, What some Buddhist teachers call America's racial karma, it's a heavy karma. And we're also working to plant seeds towards a future where some of that karma can be addressed, some of that suffering can be alleviated. I think as Buddhists, there's a lot of effort to do that. And I think there's also an understanding we're in this again, for the long haul, like the causes and conditions that created this kinds of suffering and violence that we're seeing on a systemic level didn't happen overnight. Something I really appreciate about Buddhism is it reminds us of how deeply interconnected we all are. It's very tempting to say, oh, they're the problem, that group out there, you know, we're the good people. And actually, I think within Buddhist thought, there's a reminder that that very kind of thinking actually furthers a sort of violence, a sort of divisiveness. Um, So I think right now, personally, and I feel in communities, there's a lot of trying to slow, slow down a little bit, you know, in the midst of media frenzy, and in the midst of all this polarization on social media, in the news, and trying to just take stock, tend to our own hurts, our own suffering, our own trauma, and then those of the people around us, those of our community. How do we make this work sustainable, this work of healing, of building, of repair, that's the question we keep asking together and we keep living the answers based on just how we live our everyday moments.
1: As I've listening to you talk about reflection, you know, and I'm thinking about reflecting on suffering without attaching to it. Reflecting on suffering without having Kind of a, an immediate reaction to that suffering and being able to understand it, being able to kind of see it. I know you were trained as a chaplain. What did that training and how does that training inform the way you think about trauma and you think about grief? Um. I think it just the first
0: thing that comes to mind is it's just so human and so universal. And at the same time, you know, different groups of people because of the ways we're gendered differently and racialized differently are going to have some sorts of shared collective trauma. So as a chaplain, I think we learn to attend to all of that, the kind of very human level of grief of not um not dismissing anyone's grief or suffering, but also understanding that how many of these sort of intersectional issues and identities shape that grief. And I think also as chaplains, a really important thing to remember is how important it is to tend to our own griefs, to not pretend that we're somehow separate from all of the griefs. And it's something I would encourage everyone out there to just listen deeply, not only to the cries of suffering in the world, but also the kind of cries of suffering in yourself and to reach out and ask for help.
1: I appreciate you acknowledging that. I think that regardless of one's ethnic identity or religious identity, witnessing this much trauma, acknowledging the the level of grief and loss people are feeling and the empathy, the empathy that we have for others can leave us um, Feeling overwhelmed. And I think especially in a time of a pandemic in which people are more isolated from their traditional support networks, it can be even harder, harder to cope, harder to make sense of one's role and feel like you're having an impact um, in a positive way in your community.
0: Yeah, I think that's so absolutely true. And it makes me once again, just think about this notion of karma
1: Chenxing Han is a Bay Area author and activist. Her first book, Be the Refuge, Raising the Voices of Asian Americans, was released in January 2021. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any part, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music. Additional music by Audio Binger and Blue Dot Sessions. And a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We're a nonprofit, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Ambreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week.